We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest, we're in trouble. And the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. Our communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Karma Radio studios here on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're, of course, on uh, FM 100.5 here in Alice Springs and Bantua and coming to you via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. My name's Carl Dowling and I'm here with you today on Friday the 24th of December on Christmas Eve. Hopefully everyone's having a wonderful day today uh, and, of course, you're tuning in for the final show of the year. Coming up on today's program, we're going to be revisiting some of the big news stories from throughout this year. Of course, COVID-19 has been dominating the news for the past two years. And one of the big stories from the year was back in September with the remote New South Wales community of Vulcania when they were in the grip of a COVID outbreak. Also, we're going to be looking at the Senate Committee inquiry into the destruction of the Drukhan Gorge rock shelter in Western Australia's Pilbara region, which handed down its final report back in October. Also in October, the Aboriginal Justice Agreement was launched here in Central Australia. But first, we're going to go back to the month of May, when Karma's Gilmore Johnston caught up with Arunda Woman and Trachoma Community Engagement Officer Leslie Martin, who gave an update on reducing rates of the disease in remote communities. There are so much things happening around um, at the moment and a um, whole new um, generation of um, children coming up year by year and um, mm-hmm. emergence of technology uh, as well. Um, but in saying that as well, children, very big part of our community. Yes, they are. <laughs> How are you enjoying your day so far? Oh, look, it's, this morning is absolutely gorgeous. The weather's amazing. Um, there's a lot of children around and there's also a lot of um, other stakeholders that's, that's actually here for the children. So, And it's really, really fantastic. There's a lot of interaction with the kids and activities and stuff like that with them. Yeah, it's awesome. Now tell us about, you've got a very important role here in Central Australia, of course, which are working very hard to eradicate mm-hmm this um, very terrible uh, sickness, um, trachoma. Tell us about what what is trachoma for those that don't know what trachoma is. Okay, so trachoma is actually a little bug that lives in the the crustacean of um, your snot and the dry tears. That's where, and I actually call it a germ, um, and that's where the germ actually likes to live. It actually spreads quite easily, particularly amongst the younger children. They like to touch each other, play, do all sorts of stuff with each other, and then that's where the germ actually um, sort of carries on. Best prevention really for trachoma is to get the children to actually wash their face. Um, by washing their face, they're actually washing away all the germs off their face, and which is the most important thing. 
as well. I know the slogan, Trachoma, is um, clean faces, um, strong, strong eyes. eyes. Yeah. And it's been a campaign running now for quite some time. Yes. Should we say best part of a decade? Well, yes. Um, t- also today, it's actually Melpa's birthday, yes. so he, he actually turns 10. And um, and Trachoma's actually been around quite some time, but um, we also want to sort of celebrate um, Melpa's adventures throughout the communities in, in Central Australia, but also South. Um, he's also made a few appearances over in West Australia as well. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's all about... Um, Sort of getting our message through about having clean faces and also strong eyes because that's you know that's how our kids need strong eyes for the future so that they can actually see um, a bit more better and more clearly as well. Now there has been some big improvements in eradicating mm-hmm. trachoma in our communities. Tell yep. us a, uh, just a bit of a snapshot of, of where we're, where we are at at the moment with eradicating this um, um, you know very nasty germ. Yeah. Okay. So when. Uh, so when they first started doing all the screening and treatment, there was um, like over a hundred odd uh, communities throughout uh, Central Australia that actually has that had trachoma, and now it's actually been reduced down to maybe 24, which you know, and that's in communities, which is fantastic. It's a really, really good positive outcome of it all, um, you know. And we basically, you know, just want to keep on pushing until we at least at least get zero. We're all hoping to get zero uh, trachoma in communities. But without the help of community people and the adults to actually, uh, you know, help their children to get them to wash their faces and stuff like that would be fantastic. You've got a great campaign about the um, six to seven... Yeah, six steps. Six steps. <laughs> seven steps. I think probably adding a little extra one in yeah, there. Yeah, there's an extra... Uh, there is an extra one in extra there. Extra tip, yep. So the six steps... Yep. I'm putting you on the spot again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Give good. us a couple of uh, okay, six so steps. Okay, so with the six steps, um, it's about blowing your nose until it's empty, um, washing your hands until, you know, you're washing away all the germs. It's about washing your face, and that's also helps with um, getting rid of trachoma and also other germs off your face. Um, about brushing your teeth, you know, brush your teeth every day, twice a day. It actually also reduces um, germs in the back of your mouth, which, you know, sort of um, where uh, rheumatic heart fever sort of comes mm, into play. Yeah. And then there's also having a shower every day. Um, and by having a shower every day, which actually reduces a lot of the other germs, uh, particularly in skin sores, um, scabies and stuff like that. So we actually really encourage kids and particularly the parents to get the children to have a shower every day. The other really important thing is also each child should actually have a towel um, and do not share their towels because once the towel um, is left in the bathroom, of course the rest of the family will use that towel. Mm. Most importantly, it's also good to have your towel hung up so it's out to dry, mm-hmm. uh, air it out. And the fifth, uh, so the seventh step, which is actually an extra tip, and because of the COVID, we actually would like to see kids start sneezing or coughing into their el- uh, towards their elbows, mm. but facing downwards, um, because once you blow or once you sneeze and cough, you know, the germs are actually hitting the ground. It's not hitting yourself, and you're basically not spreading the germs. Mm. 
Well, there you go. We've got a good uh, campaign running at Karma at the moment for the next 12 months. So Milpa's um, birthday and Milpa's getting, um, he's probably walking around somewhere. Hope, he hasn't, hope he hasn't got stuck into his cake already. No, 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 no. You got that uh, hidden yeah, away somewhere? I probably need to go and get him sorted, actually. <laughs> I can't see him. <laughs> well, let us yeah. know because yes. um, I'm looking forward to a little bit of um, yeah. bit of sweets to go with this coffee. <laughs> but Leslie, thank you very much. You've also got Walter here as well yes. down here. You've got a store right next to us here. Yes. Heaps of information. And just quickly, you got an app as well too that was launched yes. just recently. Yes. I, I checked it out. Yes. I had a little bit of play with it. Um, but tell us uh, with the listeners where they can go to download this app where you can get more information and um, uh, do some activities as well. Okay, so basically you can go into our website, which is IEH. Oh, good question. Hang on a minute. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, the website is iehu.unimelp.ed.au, and then there's the, the trachoma um, program button that you can actually click into it. And once you click into that actually button, into our trachoma program, you'll actually come up with all our other resources. You know, most of our resources are free. Um, people can actually order them online and it's free. We also do have our new app, uh, which is actually online as well. And with our new app, it's actually about the, the whole um, six steps coming alive. So it's a virtual reality sort of app, mm. um, which the kids were absolutely love um, and there's also uh, you know just the voiceovers there's a there's information about the um, what each steps um, you know all about yeah that conversation was from uh, back in May that was Arundel Woman and Tracoma Community Engagement Officer Leslie Martin speaking with Karma's Gilmore Johnston uh, you're tuning in to Strong Voices this uh, 24th of December. It's the last program for 2021, and we're revisiting some of the stories from throughout this year. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, looking back at the uh, outbreak that happened earlier this year in the community of Wilcania, the COVID outbreak. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari, and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! That's right. You're tuning in to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Well, in September, the remote New South Wales community of Wilcania was in the grip of a COVID outbreak in their town, which exposed many resource and organisational failures from that state's government. Aboriginal community leader and radio presenter from Wilcania pointed the finger to mismanagement from health authorities. Maureen Bummer man, Brendan Adams, says nearly one in six, nearly one in every six people in this community had COVID and says the government and health agencies are partly to blame for the outbreak because they were unprepared and ignored remote communities during the vaccine rollout. He spoke to Joseph Egger back in September. When COVID hit our community, it was like a cyclone for It came so fast and so quick that none of us was prepared for it government and local organisations, they were unprepared as well. From us, we were just so traumatised. Where are we at now with our community with COVID, we're just basically start to make sure that all of our community has been supported. We've got approximately 120 cases of positive COVID in our community. Uh, so that's really, it's a really... Um, you know, emotional time for us because that's practically one in every six person who's got COVID. Now, as you know, the beginning, uh, all of our communities, um, you know, not just Wilkenya, but 
you know, throughout Australia, we were ignored, you know, when it comes to preparation, prevention of the COVID spreading. Everything was concentrated on the cities and everything, and no disrespect to the cities and that. It's, you know, they needed help. But while they were getting help, we were thrown in the background. And uh, it started off with, unfortunately, a funeral, sorry, business. Now, with that, people got the wrong information we actually had a funeral before lockdown was ever announced. And a person who's come from another community that was already in lockdown came in and they um, came to the funeral and unfortunately from there a family got infected and it went from three people to where we are today of 120. So right now our emotions are a roller coaster. You know, we've got angry people, we've got confused people. You know, at the moment, we've got families that are going through isolation, depression, and everything. But we're here now. We've got oh, we've got the police. We've got the Australian Defence Force. We've got New South Wales and Health uh, coming together with our local community people to tackle it, to get rid of it, eliminate it, and then. What we actually really need to do is we need to be very prepared for a second wave. You can't put your guards down, you know that? And one thing I will say, you know, that when we have our conversation is I hope that a lot of communities have been watching us because it is really serious and I'm hoping that they all have preparation to prevent this because when it does when it when it did come here, as I said, it was a cyclone, and you know we we fear every day someone could lose their life. You know we've lost a few First Nations people already in Dubbo in Egonia, uh, communities that we're connected to. So it's been really hard, my brother. I know it's been a difficult time, and you know it's inevitable that. It will get to places that, I don't know if they're complacent, but, you know, there's sort of, there's a reluctance to get COVID vaccinations. And how has that rollout been with COVID vaccinations there at Vulcania? I would say the best way to answer that, my brother, is that we've had a good increase of vaccination. But what is more important before you ever go down that road is get the right information. Social media does not play a good part. With that, um, I can't say the name of the other one, that, that extra that one with, with the possible blood clotting. Now, social media came in and said, you know, five people died from blood clotting. And that, that put a lot of people, including myself, saying, oh, I'm not going to get the vaccine. But what social media didn't do is said, hang on, there was 160,000 people that took that vaccine and only five died. So five from 160,000 is a very low percentage, very low, low, low percentage. But that's not what that social media did. They just said five people died, put that fear. So get your local health organisations, people that um, communities trust. You know, you can get all the professionals from Sydney, everybody, but you want to trust your own people who are in those particular positions. Get them to come, sit there and yarn with you. Let, let community people be a part of questions and ask the questions that they fear. And uh, when, when we had that, I saw elders in there talking about, well, what about me? Because, as you know, like 
our First Nations people, our more we we're we're um, subject to chronic illness. We've got the high di- diabetes, cholesterol, everything. So you go in there, you say, "Oh, what about me? I've got a heart condition," you know. Nah. And you get the right of information from a health um, professional. You know, as, as I said, hopefully with mom. And then what that does, it gives you the right resources to make your choice to take the vaccine. For me. As I said at the start, bro, I already go, no, I don't want the vaccine. Mm. But when I heard them, it's a different story. And I ended up taking the vaccine. I got double vaccinated. I got my family. And I will really encourage our people to take the vaccine. We already got evidence of our first family that came out of um, out of quarantine. He said that I had double vax and I, I think that saved me. He said it protected me because he said he, he felt ill and all that, um, only a tiny bit. He said if he didn't have that vaccine, he, he would have been a lot worse. And so I would recommend and encourage people to take the vaccine, but get the right information so you know what vaccine's good for you. We went from two people to now we've had over 370 from the last count that I remember, and that's with some with either one dose or double dose. So I really recommend it, my family. What about the health clinic? They must have they must be under the pump. Oh, it is, you know, and, and that's why we had to get support from outside, you know, with other uh, health services out there. We've got the Royal Flying Doctors that they they take all the swabs and testing and the and then we've got a local organization based in Broken Hill known as Marama Health. Uh, they work with our local health professionals and do their best. We've got Bob coming from Orange and Bathurst and all that helping us now because, as I said, the pandemic we're at is at a crisis stage. You would have just seen lately we got 30 mobile homes delivered to our community. And with that, we were quite angry at the start because it came too really late. But where we are now, we need them. We don't need to be arguing to the government or to anyone saying who's wrong, who's right, who's accountable. Let's fix this pandemic. Let's fix this crisis. Work together. Have have the health, the police, the Australian Defence Force are here together. Our local people, our local organisations come together, sort out what we need to do. Getting the food distributed, who's responsible. Getting the um, health people to go and you know, look after and support our people that are in uh, are positive ca- cases, but also another mob to look after the mob that aren't positive to make sure they keep getting tested. You know, don't get tested once, get tested all the time. Just keep every way of that virus away from you. So knowing if you get tested all the time helps you know you stay negative. So we have all these mobs, the police. Now, the, the other thing that was really big was when, when the lockdown happened, it happened a day after this funeral. So, we, you know, we had this funeral. This person came out of town, infected our community. The lockdown happened the following day. Now, as First Nations people, our culture, we're so social inclusive. We love being with our elders, looking after our elders or our families, young people looking after, you know, their uncles and aunties and grandparents, that when you get thrown into a lockdown, you know, like that. It's hard to understand what it really means, but it's so important. And the police and all that has to acknowledge our way of culture that you have to help us and and, and get us 
into the fact that we have to lock down because the more we travel to our families, the more we were going to affect our families. So we know we had to do the right thing by staying home and do the right thing. The less you travel, the less the virus can spread. I look at this as a, as an analogy of rugby league. You know, the, the COVID is such a bad disease. It was it was beating us. It was, you know, all the cases and everything. But when our people do the right thing, and I urge all your mob out there, is when you lock yourself down, you do not do not go to your families, do not, you know, have the possible infecting your elders. Do the right thing. Get your vaccinations, uh, get tested, you know, look after each other because no one else can look after you better than you. When you do that, when you do that, we will get overcome this vaccine. Now, even though we've got over uh, 120 cases, the one thing I will love to say is since then, uh, since the beginning, we've got 40 people cleared. So that's like scoring tries when you look at a footy analogy, mm. right? We're starting to score tries. When we didn't have any with vaccinated, we're over 370. There's another try being scored. And, and the reason why I'm kind of saying that is because if you discipline yourself, you get smart with yourselves, have the right support by government organisations to do everything, then we can then say, you know what, we can defeat this virus. And that's the only way you're going to do it is by being first disciplined in yourself, do the right things. And these then these governments got to support us our way. Don't, don't say, don't listen to the way they want to do it. You say, no, you're going to listen to our community because local, local community has the best solutions. And, you know, that's the thing where we're, you know, what we are now. And I think that after that, my brother, is what I would like to have with other community is make sure you talk to the government for prevention. I know sometimes it's very hard because, you know, government organisations at times, you know, I think they've got the solutions, but they don't. They have to talk to us. And, you know, we're, we're in a better state now. We've got good support. We've got the um, motorhomes for our positive cases. We've got local people delivering food every single day, and they are our heroes. So I really praise all the guys that are doing a good thing. So right now, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident where we are, but it's still serious. As I said, you know, we've had two or three deaths, First Nations deaths. If we don't take it serious, we'll have a lot more. That was Wilcannia Community Leader and Radio Presenter at Wilcannia Radio, Brendan Adams, who was speaking there with uh, Joseph Egger. Again, that story was from back in September of this year, as we're revisiting some of the big stories from throughout the year here on the last program of Strong Voices for 2021. We're going to head to a break, and when we come back, we're going to be hearing about the report handed down uh, following the Senate Committee inquiry into the destruction of Jukan Gorge. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, where we're looking back at uh, some of the biggest stories from throughout the year here on the last show of 2021. Well, back in October, a Senate committee inquiry into the destruction of the Jukan Gorge rock shelter in Western Australia's Pilbara region handed down its final report. The report recommends new far-reaching federal legislation to protect cultural heritage, 
Committee Chair Warren Inch spoke with Karma's Paul Wiles about their investigation and shares how what he saw impacted on him. When I introduced the report into Parliament, I said that it is my earnest hope that this report leads to positive change and it needs to happen. It's been an amazing journey and it's taken a while. Unfortunately, COVID has certainly delayed the process for us. But look, I think it's a very good report. I think it builds on the interim report that we spoke about never again. That was back in December last year. And this one here certainly is going to highlight some directions that we really need to go on this. And It's been a long time coming, but I think there are some good recommendations there. And if people look at this, they'll see certainly see uh, some very, very positive directions on a way forward. What have you taken out of your journey doing this report as far as gaining a better understanding of the significance to these sites, not only to Aboriginal people, but Australia's history? Well, first of all, I mean, the destruction of these sites. Uh, I was amazed, and I, and I say this from my own personal perspective, I was amazed to the level of destruction that of, of cultural site that was done legally and uh, with full government sanctions. <laughs> I mean, the Section 18 was something, you know, I'm a Queenslander, so I knew nothing about it in West Australia, but, I mean, that in itself is really a, a permit to destroy sites, and, and it shouldn't be that way. I think one of the things that it reinforced to me as well, and again, personally, is that when we talk about uh, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural sites, sites of, of very strong significance. They are sites that really are not only very, very important to the uh, first people, they're important to all Australians. It wasn't everybody that, for example, built the pyramids or the Pathalon, but, but they are owned collectively by the people of Greece or uh, Egypt. And these sites are equally as important. In fact, well, far more important in so much as, you know, we're talking, you know, in, in this particular case, 46,000 plus years of, of history there. And it really needs to be preserved because we learn from our history and, and the years of which it was destroyed and going back to the original information or evidence that we collected, it was destroyed because there was seen to be $30 million worth of iron ore on the site. I've got to say that uh, in reflection and hindsight, Rio, and they've said it quite openly, absolutely regrets the action of those that were involved in the decision-making process, but but nevertheless, it happened. I guess the the positive side of things and that I that I have from this is that most of those sites, other than Second Shelter, which was totally destroyed, but the actual platform where the excavations went down a couple of metres, identifying that 46,000 years of, of uh, habitation, are still intact. The rest of the shelter, I think there's another five shelters, are still intact. And so from that perspective, you've got to be relieved. But having said that, the other positive thing that's come out of this is that there is a real focus now people, not just our First Nations people, but people all over the country and around the world are demanding that we afford better protection. Mining companies, and most notably the first to come out was BHP, who have been very, very uh, forthcoming in their commitment. They're reviewing all of their uh, permits. They've committed to transparency, as has uh, 
Neo Rio and others. So they're looking at it through a very different lens. And so I think from that perspective, we can see some great outcomes. But things there are many things that need to be done by government as well. The recommendations, we put eight recommendations up, but they're quite substantive. One of the first things what we realised is that there was a lot of confusion who people had to go to for to get support, to report state or, or federal, where did they go? And so one of the first recommendations we put up, there needs to be overarching Commonwealth legislation that, that sort of looks over the top of all the state, because every state and territory is different, but there needs to be a go-to place that overrides everything else. And so we put in a recommendation that there needs to be a need for overarching Commonwealth legislative framework. Again, one of the problems was even when you, if they did go to the Commonwealth, where do you go? Do you go to the Environment Minister? Do you go to the Attorney General? Do you go to the Aboriginal Affairs Minister? And, and so there can be a, a, a sense of confusion. And it's an easy way to to miss an opportunity of prevention. And, and I think the PKK, Jugan Gord situation was a classic example where they had engaged lawyers to represent them and to assist them in protecting the site. And the lawyer that they had represented actually rang both the Federal Environment Minister and the Federal in, uh, Aboriginal Affairs Minister's offices, not the ministers, the officers, and they got a, a, a receptionist. And they asked for an advisor, and they were told that the advisor wasn't available, so they just said, oh, they left a message, give us a call. Now, a couple of days later, they hadn't heard because one of the advisors was actually away on leave. So they tried again, and again was told, no, not available. Quite bizarrely, the response then from the lawyer was, well, why didn't you ring the minister? Why didn't you ask for the minister? Why didn't you escalate it? And the response was, and this, you know, this was taken in evidence, it wasn't in my brief. So this is the reason why we say that there was a whole range of reasons why it occurred and what we're trying to eliminate those reasons. So there is a single point at some stage when all else fails, there's one where you can go and say, rightio, we need to deal with this. Rather than have three or four different portfolios that have part responsibility, we're recommending that the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, Heritage Protection Act and the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act for, for, the, for protecting Indigenous culture be transferred to the Minister for Indigenous Australians. And that way they can have one department there that is responsible for this so that, you know, one can't be, if you like, duck shoving from one to the other. The other thing too, which is we found absolutely essential, is the Australian Government needs to review the Native Title Act. Understand that the Native Title Act was in introduced in 1993, close to 30-odd years ago. And things have changed dramatically. We've progressed so far since 1993. And so it's not inappropriate to um, expect that we should be doing a review there. Other things, there is a need for the development of a model for cultural truth-telling. Um, there needs to establish uh, also an independent fund to uh, administer funding of prescribed body corporates. This is another area where we found you know, the body corporates themselves, the PBCs, many of them really struggled. A lot of them still 
coping with the responsibilities that they had and uh, under-resourced to blazes and, uh, you know, situations where there's a lot of, particularly if there's a lot of mining area, interest in an area, you've got a small PBC that is being asked to make assessments on five, four or five or six different things at the same time. They just don't have the resources to do it. And so that needs to be reviewed as well. So there's a fair bit in it, and uh, we're hoping and we're expecting that given the focus that's there, both in governments and and from the broader public, that um, a lot of this will be implemented very quickly. At the end of the day, these are recommendations. Is there anything within those recommendations to ensure or to push forward um, everything that you've actually put in there or... Will the report just be put on the shelf and uh, 10 years later we'll, we'll be revisiting it? There is a requirement from the government to respond to this within a prescribed time. I've got to say to you also that there is a huge amount of interest in this. I mean, when we went through this process, it just wasn't the Indigenous voices out there that were raising concerns. It was the investors, the shareholder associations said not in our name. They were absolutely outraged by it. The broader Australian public, I think, it really it really showed the issues that are, that are there, the challenges that are there. Most people, uh, including myself, wasn't aware to the extent of of the uh, the destruction and 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 the ease of destruction that uh, was occurring. One of the members of the committee, who was a great educator for me, was Senator Paddy Dodson. And uh, I have to say that, you know, Paddy Paddy was a great educator for me, you know, and sharing stories and explaining things to me. And I was very thankful for the fact that he was actually on the committee with me. But we'll certainly intend to pursue it. We've done it now. There's a lot of work has gone into this. There's a 313-page report. I suspect from the evidence that we've been given here, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, you know, First Nations people are demanding and expecting change. Uh, mining companies are now very much aware of it and say, expecting change. And I'm absolutely confident that we will see some movement there. And, and uh, you know, we'll certainly be... Uh, watching this closely as a committee. I'm still the chair of the committee. Once the time frame is up, we'll be asking questions as to why. And I'm sure you guys will be doing the same. You get a copy of the report, I would expect that you would be demanding to be changed as well. As far as bringing the nation closer to a better understanding, your journey, do you see that as something that you can take on board and share with others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what what has happened is uh, one of the, probably the most profound changes from my own personal perspective is this is, to me, this is not somebody else's history. This is all Australians. This is my history. When I went up there, went out there and had a look at what, the, what, what had been done, I was absolutely devastated. I was just shocked that it could be allowed to happen. And not in my name. I don't want this type of destruction. This is what I think helps to make this report so strong. The other, the other thing too, which become very clear, is that none of the TOs are against mine. All the ones we spoke to support it. But their rights to, to benefit from their land, their rights to be able to have a voice in protecting their uh, cultural history, or Australia's cultural history, needs to be well and truly reinforced. And it gets back to that, that, that one single principle, the principles of free, prior 
and informed consent on behalf of those uh, traditional owners whose land is likely to be impacted. We get that right. We have transparency there, and we have a, have a working positive agreement between the traditional owners and, and whether it be mining companies or whatever, have mutual respect and accepting that uh, some things are just not negotiable, then I think uh, we'll be going a big way in the right direction. That was a chair of the Northern Australia Committee's final report into the destruction of the 46,000-year-old Jukan Gorge Caves. Warren Enchi was talking there with uh, Paul Wiles. That was a story was from back in October. You're tuning in to Strong Voices. We'll be back with our final story right after this. You're listening to Strong Voices. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Well, the Aboriginal Justice Agreement was launched in Central Australia back in October this year after being launched a number of months prior in the top end. The agreement is a seven-year plan looking to engage Aboriginal leadership and improve services for remote Northern Territory communities. The Gunner government says it will invest in communities to prevent economic disadvantage by breaking vicious cycles of poverty, offending and incarceration. Philippe Perez, who attended the launch held in Alice Springs, put together this report. Despite the agreement being launched in Darwin back in August, a ceremony had been planned to take place in Central Australia, with its own raft of announcements for the region. One of them being that the remote community of Kintor will be the first community in Central Australia to form a government-supported law and justice group. The remote community, located 530 kilometres west of Alice Springs, will establish a community-driven group which will support greater autonomy for Aboriginal Territorians in that region. Another law and justice group is hoped to be set up in the remote community of Inkunji, otherwise known as Hast Bluff. Member of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement Committee, Phil Brown, says it was an important step for Aboriginal people in reducing incarceration rates and that consultations in the past were significant as well as further discussions down the track. The conversations were quite open, frank and meaningful. It was quite clear the community wanted to see change. This agreement is a turning point in how the Northern Territory Government works alongside and together with Aboriginal organisations and Aboriginal Territorians will work together to improve justice outcomes and the lives of Aboriginal people in the Territory. Voices are now being heard and this agreement is a commitment by the Northern Territory Government to ensure that Aboriginal Territorians that come into contact with the justice system, whether as victims, offenders, witnesses or families will be treated fairly respectfully and without discrimination. It is no surprise that Aboriginal people have consistently made up the large proportion of our prison. I joined the job as a young prison officer back in 1985, based at Darwin Prison. The numbers average in that centre was around about 110 to 130. Still, 85% of that prison population were Aboriginal and that was before the Royal Commission into the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Today, there are approximately about 1,100 prisoners held in Darwin Correctional Centre alone. Critics of the agreement say it doesn't go far enough, with advocates still calling for the age of criminal responsibility to be raised from 10 to 14. It is not included within the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. 
Critics also point to recent changes to bail laws, which the government has said itself will send younger people to prison, going against what the agreement is aiming for. While not specifically saying the age of criminal responsibility should be raised, Mr Brown said at the launch that seeing young people within prison systems needs to stop. Now, I've had some highs in my career in corrections, but I've also experienced some lows. And one of the lows that really still sticks with me today was when I walked into Dondam and I saw a 10-year-old boy in his cell on his own for his own safety due to being kept apart from the older boys. At first sight, I said to myself, I was a young boy once. I grew up around my brothers, other Aboriginal boys. Like him, I have nephews the same age as this boy. I asked why he isn't at home with his family, at school, kicking the footy with his mates, or riding the push bike with other kids around the neighbourhood. And I still get quite emotional about this, seeing that 10-year-old boy, Aboriginal boy, in the cell on his own. I asked the question today, what sort of society are we living in with more Aboriginal females coming into custody and children as young as 10 coming into custody? Mr Brown, who is an Aboriginal man and has worked within prisons across the Northern Territory, told stories of the many people he met in correctional facilities during his time working as a correctional officer. He gave a passionate plea to the wider community to have faith in the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. The data and the research and experience of Aboriginal people demonstrates that Aboriginal people are far worse than non-Aboriginal people at every stage of the justice process. The knowledge of help is not there, as 78% of Aboriginal people who identify discrimination as an issue not to seek legal advice or help. All these issues and statistics lead to having a knock-on effect, which brings about huge economic costs to the justice system, estimated around about $3.9 billion for Aboriginal incarceration alone. The current situation is grim, but there is hope. With this Aboriginal Justice Agreement, over the course of the seven years, will bring about genuine partnerships that will help the needs of Aboriginal Territorians and bring about a better life and outcomes for all. Now, I go back on my 28 years in corrections, I've seen the fathers come into custody. Then after a few years, I started seeing the sons come into custody. Sometimes whilst their fathers were in there and sometimes while their fathers were not. Later on, when I haven't seen the fathers for a while, I asked the sons, where are their fathers? I haven't seen them back in custody or around town. They would tell me that their fathers are home, back in the community, sick. You can't go anywhere. How tragic is this? When the fathers spend most of their younger lives going in and out of the prison system, and when they age, they are back in the community with a medical condition and they can't travel. Now, if I was in corrections for another five years, I would be seeing the grandsons come into custody. I strongly believe that this Aboriginal Justice Agreement will go a long way in preventing intergenerational incarceration. 
Territory Attorney General Selena Yubo also spoke at the launch. She says that while there are many elements to the agreement, the successful implementation of the plan comes down to appropriate services and giving stronger leadership for those in communities. She outlined that many of the priorities in the Aboriginal Justice Agreement were very pertinent to her as a Nugambuyu woman. 85% of our prison population identifies as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander territorials. And unfortunately, we have 80% offending rate, re-offending rate. When I visited our prisons and our work camps in the past, it is no longer a surprise, unfortunately, to our correction staff when I run into a family member in those facilities. And when I do, I'm able to speak language, have a bit of a laugh with my family. However, the reality does hit home. When we're talking about the actual justice agreement and what we can impact for change, and what that change will mean for our future and the effects for positive impact on our families, including my own. Again, it is a weight of responsibility that I carry and I know many here do. The people entering our prisons are also our family members. They are our past, our present and our future wrapped up. So for me, the actual justice agreement is not just a government priority, it is also a personal priority. At the launch, Ms Yubo thanked the work of the Aboriginal Justice Unit under Director Leanne Little, who is an Aranda woman from Amantua, Alice Springs. Ms Yubo said her work was vital to creating the reform framework. Ms Yubo says there was still much more needed to be done, though, especially outside the scope of crime within Central Australia. The largest decrease in Aboriginal students completing the Year 12 certificate was in the Central Australian region. The number of actual Territorians engaged in vocation, education and training and commencing traineeships and apprenticeships also decreased. This region saw the largest increase in the number of Aboriginal Territorians accessing homelessness services. Many of these issues will only shift with a genuine and embedded shift of power from our government and for future governments. And that shift of power must go across and be locally made by our Aboriginal communities and families. And that's the lesson we've seen from around the globe. So why repeat the mistakes of the history? Our focus as a Labor government is on local decision making. We are progressing local decision making agreements right across the Northern Territory. And our focus is here in Central Australia in the Barclay region. Our agreement, in partnership with Laura Timber, continuing one agreement also with Tungajin Council and engaging with communities throughout the Central and Barclay regions about how better to empower our Aboriginal Territorians and our families. That was Attorney General Selena Yubo finishing off that report by Philippe Perez. You also heard in that report our member for the Aboriginal Justice Agreement Committee and former correctional officer in the Northern Territory, Phil Brown. Well, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this afternoon. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can listen back to this and previous programs on karma.com.au. Again, today is the final program of the year for 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in throughout the year. 
Uh, we'll be taking a break over January and Strong Voices will be returning in February of 2022. 